Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. I just got off the Skype phone with Janet Gyatso to talk about her fabulous and beautiful and really important new book, Being Human in a Buddhist World, an Intellectual History of Medicine in Early Modern Tibet. This came out in 2015 with Columbia University Press, and it is absolutely a must-read if you work on the history of early modern science and medicine, the history of medicine, the history of Tibet, or if you just really are interested in good, well-written books. Um, It's a really astounding accomplishment that is going to be an absolute... um, I think, mainstay on syllabi, um, uh, on uh, research bookshelves for a long, long time to come. So what Janet does in this book is she looks at the interplay between kind of Buddhist and religious ways of knowing and practice and ethics and writing and more kind of scientific medical um, empiricist or empirically oriented ways of research and writing and thinking and shows us how these were very much entangled in really fascinating ways, in ways that both distinguished and mutually informed um, one another in the early modern world. So there are chapters and parts that look at particular aspects of this, from um, particular modes of commentary, to aspects of the medicine of women and gender, to attentiveness to materiality in the empirical world, um, to much, much, much more. It's a fascinating book. It's a very rich and extensive book, and it frankly was a total pleasure both to read it and also to talk with Janet about it. It's also um, very beautifully illustrated with lots of color images. One one of the chapters in particular that you'll hear about um, in a few moments looks very carefully at a set of medical paintings and is very, very lushly illustrated um, with images from these paintings in a way that really integrates the images into the argument um, and is really a model for how to read these kinds of images creatively and also responsibly in telling a larger story. Um, so I hope you enjoy and I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a book. Again, it's, it's a, a beautiful object as well as being a really masterful study. So thanks very much for listening and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Janet Gyatso about her new book, Being Human in a Buddhist World. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Janet, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really, really excited about this one. Well, thank you so much for asking me. It's a great opportunity to talk about my book with someone, so thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. So, Janet, um, could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by just saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you come to work on Tibetan Studies? Well, Tibetan studies, that's a long, long story. Um, I was interested really in Buddhism and Buddhist ideas just in a very general way as an undergrad, actually as a math major, and then as an astronomy major. Uh, But um, fortuitously, I ran into or or had the chance to go visit a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in New Jersey that had uh, lectures for outsiders. And I just was just blown away just in general by meeting. There was actually some really old teachers there who were teaching and just seeing them as human beings and the way they talked about things. And I just like decided that I had to learn Tibetan so I could talk directly to them and not through a translator. And so I changed course. I actually quit school for a while. I studied Tibetan for a couple of years and then found myself in California and then got back into uh, Berkeley and then actually uh, went on entirely through the program there in Buddhist studies. Wow, that's awesome. So the book that we're talking about today is a really masterfully written and researched history of medicine in early modern Tibet that looks very carefully, among other things, at the relationships between what we might call medicine and what we might call religion in that context. So Mm -hmm. how did you come to this particular topic and to decide to create a book-length object about this particular topic? 
Okay. Well, first of all, my main answer to that question is that I have no idea, and I, <laughs> and I, don't, I don't know how I wrote this book. And when I look at it now, because it just came out, and I'm still trying to you know, come to terms with, did I write this? And how did I ever get this idea? And it's just like, it's, it's, a, it's like an amazing thing to confront what you've been doing actually for a very long time, you know, when it's now an object in front of you. But the main narrative is this. I mean, I was really trained in Buddhist studies and in a, actually area studies department, but then uh, all of my jobs have been in religious studies departments. So I'm now very much in religious studies as well. And and the stuff that I've been working on before has very much been to do with Buddhist ideas. I mean, I have been interested in Buddhist practices and, and how Buddhism is, you know, what people refer to as a lived religion and so on. But I had gotten to a place in my work that I was interested in gender and I had actually have been writing about issues about women and gender. And I decided to, um, you know, if I wanted to work on this in Tibetan studies, um, it occurred to me, oh, well, you know, maybe medical works might have something to say and might be interesting to see how they characterize the female gender. And when I said, and luckily where I was actually at the time was Amherst College and at this place called Shangsheng Institute, which is right near Amherst in Western Mass. There was a Tibetan teacher there actually doing a course on Tibetan medicine, and I was able to take part in this course and I was just really amazed at the style of writing in this root medical text, the four treatises that the book talks a lot about. It was so different from everything that I have re- had read in Tibetan literature so far, which indeed is so dominated by religion and Buddhism. And it was just the whole tone, the whole like matter of factness about any number of topics, not just women and gender, um, that really just a- attracted me, and and I just loved it. And so I started getting more and more into just the medical literature itself, and found myself really deeply engrossed. And so I ended up in the book. There is a chapter on women and gender, but the whole book. Then I was really grappling with my surprise and my delight at this particular style of writing that I was not used to, after many years of working in Tibetan studies and Tibetan Buddhist studies. Mm-hmm. So. Sorry. Yeah. No, that's it. (laughs) Well, one of the things um, for me that was really striking about the book, just um, incidentally, coming from a field that I work in in history of science and medicine, was the way that the book is not just um, situating itself historiographically within area studies, but really deeply engages, I think, in almost every chapter, if not every chapter, with um, literature on ways of thinking about early modern science and science studies and medical studies um, beyond mm-hmm. Tibet and other contexts. So it's very That's much right. in a conversation, right, beyond area studies, which is one of the things that makes it so um, fascinating and useful, I think, f- even for people who don't work on Tibet or don't imagine themselves as being primarily interested in Tibet. Well, that's right. And and I'll, I'll say just to back up again about my history, I mean, the, the book that I wrote, the main monograph that I wrote before this was a book on Tibetan autobiography. And there, too, I was actually engaging modernity studies and issues about the whole notion of modernity because, of course, autobiography is seen as one of the hallmarks of the, of modern society. And it's, you know, frequently claimed that something like, you know, really writing about the individual self in a kind of candid way is really not found until modern times in general. And so this book, too, is addressing that larger question. And the way, one of the ways that I think about it and how like I fell into it and got into, into it, having like no training in this area at all, was basically on the grounds of, and it's sort of kind of the way I've done my work all along, is like what really excites me? Like what do I feel attracted to? And that for me is a sign of, you know, my own position. You know, here I am indeed, you know, a postmodern person living at this particular time. Why is it that this particular material captured my attention? And so part of that is its resonance with certain sensibilities that I have as a modern person. And then you you then bump up immediately to the, you know, ongoing narrative about Tibet and a place like Tibet as a pre-modern traditional society. And there's a kind of disjuncture there. And so that made me, you know, realize that there are important sort of deeper issues about our entire narrative of history, intellectual history, cultural history, you know, things like the history of science and so on 
that perhaps are really a little bit distorted by our maybe lack of knowledge of the kind the kinds of discourses and writings that actually are available from a place like Tibet, which indeed is not actually limited to this very devotional, you know, religious kind of perspective. That's so, yeah, so, so that's why, you know, all along, and, and I also receive a lot of challenges. I mean, in, in that first book on autobiography, I like spent a lot of time, and I think it made the book you know, somewhat better is having a lot of people say, well, I don't care if they're writing in the first person. That actually is not autobiography. It can't be because um, Buddhists believe that there's no such thing as the self. So how can it be individualistically oriented? You know, which, of course, makes certain assumptions about, you know, what one quote unquote believes as opposed to what one actually says. But the same thing with medicine, actually, and I'm expecting perhaps to get some critical pushback on the book, because if you look at writing right now on, you know, anything about medicine in any Buddhist world, it's all about how Buddhist ideas have completely dominated, you know, conceptions of health, conceptions of the body, and that actually something like, you know, modern medicine or biomedicine is really not even comparable. It's, it's really, there's a question of whether you can use even the same word for what you would see happening in a place like Tibet. And, but I'm saying, well, I'm not sure that that's true, actually. And maybe we're bringing our expectations of what, you know, we've come to think about a place like Tibet and not really looking at what's in front of us. So, so Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think anytime we're writing about um, medicine outside the dominant biomedical context, right, you kind of you, you're going to get it from every side. And this that's is not right. To say, but, you know, like either you're um, if you integrate attentiveness to the context, uh, a wider context rather than just like China or Tibet, right, or right. Japan, you're mm-hmm. going to be people are potentially going to say, oh, well, you're just reading it from the lens. That's you know, exactly centric. And if it's the opposite. Right. So I think I think the book strikes a really beautiful balance, actually. Um, so I will stand behind it and champion <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. I think it's defend great, it for great. me. Defend, defending in progress. That's it. But I don't actually think you're going to need to defend it because it's awesome. We'll so, see. <laughs> so the book itself looks carefully at what you call the double movements of medicine and religion. At the same time, medical learning in Tibet both encouraged a critical approach to religious authority while also maturing within the context of Tibetan Buddhism. And we're going to see this throughout the chapters and throughout the book. So part one in the capital um, begins in the late 17th century, and it explores a really amazing set and really carefully reads this set of 79 medical paintings. Now, these Tonka scrolls depicted human anatomy, materia medica, therapeutics, diagnostic medicine, pathologies, and much, much else. And there's really a phenomenal range of content here. Now, they were closely tied to a textual corpus by the man who directed the creation of the paintings, and this was a region and protege of the great fifth Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama who consolidated the Tibetan state in the 17th century. So can you bring us into this, because we're going to see him later, by introducing um, the author of this text who also supervised the construction of these paintings, the Desi. Uh, so I'm sorry, I'm not sure what yeah. you're asking. Oh, so for <laughs> listeners who don't know anything about oh, okay. um, the Desi Yatso, oh, who yes, is okay. he and, and what do we need to understand about him as a person um, in order to understand then um, the work that he's going to do later in the book when it comes to, you know, these tankas and, and beyond? Right. Well, it's all this is very much related to what you just said is in the 17th century, you see the establishment of what people refer to as the theocracy of Tibet, uh, in which you have the Dalai Lama as both the religious and the secular head of a Tibetan state, which is basically established after a lot of wars were fought in 1642. And so what happened before that, you certainly had a lot of really important lamas who were who had types of secular authority there is a back and forth what is often called the patron priest relationship between tibet and china where where tibetan lamas are being so-called patronized or supported by the chinese emperors and in return the priest side is the tibetan lamas who give teachings to the chinese emperor and many other people and 
uh, with the establishment of the Dalai Lama and, and an independent state, although there, there have previously been independent states at earlier moments in Tibetan history, but in this particular case, there's a really a self-conscious uh, desire to make the, founda- the very foundations of secular authority dependent on very deep, complicated theological concepts about the Dalai Lama as a reincarnated Lama. So Desi Sangigatso, who is his regent after he dies and was his his prime minister before the fifth Dalai Lama died, was you know a very very intelligent, highly educated person who was extremely helpful to the fifth Dalai Lama in writing a lot of works in which this whole notion of a religious state is actually theorized. But the interesting thing that's happening at the same time is that the Tibetan state is now is dealing with the soon-to-be Manchu dynasty, and it is, um, you know, entering on the world stage. And so there's ways in which the sort of the extent of power or the nature of power is, tr- is transforming. And so they indeed are interested in many other issues. And medicine becomes this place that's really... A kind of it, it kind of feeds into long-term Buddhist rhetoric about you know even the Buddha is thought to be the medicine Buddha. The Buddhism is good for your health. Buddhism has long been seen as a kind of medicine, and yet at the same time, medicine is also a way that you know any kind of early modern state um, it wants to be able to take care of its people, not just with culture and religion, but something very concrete like medicine. You know, obviously many other areas as well. Uh, and so, the, so the Desi is like you know a kind of good kind of icon of the of the whole project of this double movement that I talk about throughout the book because on, on the one hand he, like everybody else in, in in Tibet, has many commitments to Buddhist thought, Buddhist ideology, Buddhist you know foundational view of the world, and yet they're also interested in other things. And so medicine becomes a good sort of fulcrum in which you can both sort of work in Buddhist ideas and then also at the same time go perhaps beyond them, which he's doing and other people are doing. The the creation of the painting set itself is really kind of something of a mystery because, you know, even though we have lots of archival material, we don't have any knowledge of, of any significant other such almanac or encyclopedia, illustrated encyclopedia of medical learning that we know that they were exposed to and knew about. And there are no precedents except for a few little fragments here and there of this kind of medical illustration in Tibet. And uh, where he got the idea to do this and and where he got the models. And, you know, when you look at the set, and by the way, I would highly encourage the readers to look at the full set. It's a book called uh, Tibetan Medical Paintings, mm-hmm. published by Serindia. You know, the stuff that I talk about in this chapter, I just, you know, focus on a few of the unbelievable many. I mean, it's so beautiful. It's so, like, delightful to the eye. Where they got the idea of doing this, you know, is really kind of a question. But he pulled it off and he had all these artists and they did it. So. Right. I mean, it's, and the paintings themselves are amazing. So they, they depict everyday life in really fascinating ways. And this depiction of everyday life becomes really important to understanding the work that they're doing um, in this chapter and in the book. The in, the images are often integrating details that are left out of the text. Um, yes. And these include um, details uh, regarding clothing. Um, the images depict a range of people. There are details of you know animal behaviors and couples having sex, including a homosexual couple. Yes. Um, there's some really <laughs> interesting things happening here. So um, you talk in this chapter about the methodological issues involved in reading these scrolls. So um, can you tell us a little bit about that? What for you are some of the methodological issues involved in reading the scrolls? And for you, what are the most important um, take-home messages that come from those readings um, for you? Well, let's see. I mean, the main methodological approach that I took, I mean, basically it started just on 
just my delight, you know, and, you know, I love these paintings and then why. And what I started to see, you know, the ones in particular that I like the most were those in which the artists were taking certain liberties. So they're, they're basically trying to reproduce the basic medical root text and all its sort of categories of knowledge. You know, so each little vignette is a painting of one particular illness or one particular kind of medicine or some particular situation that the text talks about. But in the so that the methodological thing is that in in creating a visual work of art, you kind of fill in the details, which are never actually totally explicit in any written text. And and the artists start to fill in the details, as you were saying, like, for example, facial expression, costume, hairdo, lots of stuff. Um, you know, kinds of actions that the people are engaged in. Like, so there's one set of illustrations that shows a bunch of people preparing certain kind of medical brews. But actually, it shows the people while they're preparing the medical brews, they're also talking with other people, they're laughing, they're joking. That's not in the text. And so I saw that there was this whole second level of, of, of the visual representation. Actually, Roland Barthes' work was actually very helpful for me in this, uh, I forget what he calls it, extraneous detail which says a lot and and it says it without saying it explicitly and it's almost like a second message that you're getting and you know i think in advertising people use that today is that you know you're they're like telling you how great coke is and how delicious it is but there's also the secondary message that oh if you drink this coke you will be popular like these amazingly popular kids that you see having like the time of their life and so I found by looking at those, you know, extra level of detail that was purely visual, that all sorts of stuff emerged about the attitude that the Desi Sangigatso who created these things and the whole attitude of the state towards his people, which I found um, reflecting certain modernist sensibilities. And so uh, one example of it, uh, there's another case where you see two different figures of men and they both like have their arms up in some way and what it's doing is illustrating certain organs in the body and so the point of the image is to illustrate point you know the organs of the body but uh the actual two different men like there's a huge amount of detail in their expression one has a huge mustache the other is bald and and you say, you know, why did they bother to, like, fill in all this detail, which has nothing to do with the organs in the body that the thing's trying to depict? And what you see there is a kind of interest in individuality, in fact, a delight in individuality for its own sake, which, you know, is never actually spoken in the medical text, but you can see it operating. It's very, very evident. And this phrase, like delight in individuality, that comes straight, in fact, out of autobiography theory, you know, our interests, for no reason at all, we just love to hear the stories of individual people just for their own sake, very, very modern sentiment. So those, those were the kinds of things that I could detect um, by looking at the illustrations. Mm -hmm. And the chapter um, actually makes the really interesting case, I think, that the world envisioned in the paintings is really interestingly combining individuality with a kind of generality, right? That they, the That's true. paintings, they don't depict specific deities, right, or people or events. They portray generic scenes, exactly. generic deities, right? They kind of decenter religion. And so um, the chapter, I, I, at least I thought, was making a really interesting argument that this kind of way that it's combining um, generality and individuality that's right that's is actually right. a model right for the values of the state so people exactly sit in like connections between medicine and imaging in the state um, will find a lot of really interesting uh, material here well, good <laughs> so the desi wasn't just um, somebody who wrote a uh, commentary to the four treatises or who supervised paintings he was also a historian of medicine. He was a writer in other ways. And the next mm -hmm. chapter stays with him to look more broadly at the history of medicine in Tibet from the 12th to the 17th centuries and its patronage by the fifth Dalai Lama and um, the Desi, his protege. Mm -hmm. So in the Desi's writing, he's really critical of one of his main medical predecessors. And this is someone called Zerkarwa. Am I pronouncing yes. that relatively? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's good enough. Yeah. Okay, great. So Zerkarwa is someone who becomes really, really important later. And he's 
um, the 16th century author of a commentary on the four treatises called Ancestors' Advice. Now, you point to the kind of really interesting aspect of this, at least in part, being that the Desi is really super critical um, in a way, relatively speaking, right, of the Zerkarba in the context of writing a biography of this guy. And this is actually a kind of breach of writerly Etiquette. Etiquette. Mm -hmm. Now, you're suggesting that this approach, this very candid approach, very critical approach, um, Mm -hmm. was possibly a product of and a model for medical professional ethics. Um, So could you maybe talk a little bit about that aspect Mm -hmm. of what's going on? Yeah, well, etiquette itself, I think, is very important, again, and it it is a window onto really important cultural values. And I think there's an etiquette of or a, a mode of being that perhaps was tolerated more in medical circles than in Buddhist circles, although in Buddhist circles, too, there is a lot of criticism and a lot of debate and so on. But people are more constrained by, you might say, the etiquette of deference to teachers in the Buddhist context than they were in the medical context. And that's where I tried to develop this notion of mentality or mentalité in the French Annal school sense of, of you know, it's, it's where I'm trying to point to the differences between Buddhist ethics, etiquette and protocols and those that you find in medicine, which I'm feeling are more informed by scientific ways of thinking so that one doesn't have to think so much always about who you're insulting, you know, when you're trying to get the facts right, you just are, you know, just looking, you're, you're going after the facts themselves and, and, and therefore uh, more like freed up to be able to also say the truth about who really knows, who doesn't, who's competent and who's not. Uh, And so this marks a really important, I think, divergence from Buddhist ideas, which are so trained upon the moral and the virtues of of imagining or visualizing your teacher as a completely perfect, enlightened person. And, you know, you, you do see that operating in Tibetan medicine as well in certain cases, but there's cases, especially with Adesi himself, that his own writing reveal like an, another side starts to come out in particularly striking ways. Right. And one of the really beautiful things about the chapter is that it's showing not just um, a kind of distinctiveness, as you're pointing to, right, between medicine and kind of uh, and Buddhist uh, tendencies uh, toward mm-hmm. writing, but also yeah. as you know, as we talked about at the beginning. Um, there's also a way that there's a deep connection between Buddhism and medicine and the state. So this chapter takes us into the importance of medicine for um, the state, really, of the great fifth Dalai Lama. That's right. That's right. right. Medicine in this context is a really key component of what you point to here as a kind of cosmopolitan spirit in his capital. He's inviting international physicians to his court. He's having Mm -hmm. some of them translate works, right, um, into Tibetan. And at the same time, he's supporting efforts to preserve some of the classic works from the past. That's right. You talk about this as a kind of, um, again, in terms that are going to be more broadly important throughout the book, this is an example of a tension between um, what counted empirically in the world, right? What was empirically observable and, and what the classical sources said. So can you maybe talk a little bit about this tension between old and new, since this does seem to be so germinal um, in the other contexts, um, in the other chapters of the book as well. Right. Well, the tension of the old and new, it has a lot to do with scriptural authority, and that actually comes up mostly in the following chapter. But this idea that, you know, which is the way we now, as historians, cultural historians, we understand a certain attitude towards tradition in traditional societies which is says something like, you know, the great masters of old were, you know, it's sort of like a golden age rhetoric that they knew everything. Now we have devolved. We're nowhere near as pure as people were in the past. And really, in order to know more and to develop yourself, what you need to do is study what the great masters of the past has said and try to take that those things in. And that's very much at odds with a kind of modernist assumption 
that, oh, you know, what's in the past was might not have been right. In fact, it, we, we can improve on the past. And there are things that the old masters didn't know. And not only that, the idea that um, times are changing. And it's not the case that any one message is always the same in every single context. And so maybe for now, for, you know, the given situation now, we might need something different than we needed in an earlier era. So these two sentiments are at odds with each other. And on the one hand, you know, so Tibetan Buddhists, you know, you have this huge educational edifice in Tibet coming out of the Buddhist monasteries and the Buddhist seminaries in Tibet, where, you know, everybody is is really following on the first idea. You know, there was the Buddha. He was completely enlightened. And we need to study the scriptures. And yet and, and this idea of creating something new was frowned upon often as, you know, being, you know, a kind of, you know, chutzpah that where do you get this idea that you know better than the masters of the past? And yet what I see happening in medicine, it's because precisely when you come across something in the empirical world that, you know, doesn't actually reflect what the texts say, you have a problem. And what are you going to do with that? And in medicine, given that the doctor is there to cure people, you know, you're more, um, you know, compelled to, to um, figure out, you know, what is the thing in front of you and if, and the text might be wrong. And so that's the kind of uh, tension that you see throughout this chapter about on the one hand, they are going back to, you know, old text and revitalizing them, re-editing them. And yet you see at the same time as the commentaries on the old text, you know, develop, people are, are discovering new things and they're, and they're putting in new information that wasn't there before. And that's something, it, it happens a lot in Tibetan intellectual history, but often in ways that you, you can't see it as clearly as you see it in medical writing, I would say. And this um, issue of the stakes that are facing the doctor and potentially the death of the patient is also something yes. that we'll see, right, coming up later. Exactly. Um, yeah. It becomes really important. So as we move to the second part of the book, Bones of Contention, we move to a really close and really fascinating study of the work, um, the critical work in particular, of this guy, Zerkarwa, that we just were talking about. Yeah. Now, ch- chapter three looks at the long debate over the authorship of this text, the four treatises um, that we've also been talking about, which is the root text of Tibetan medicine. Now, the mm-hmm. text had been attributed to um, the medicine Buddha, right, himself. But That's some, right. But some scholars are pointing to signs that the text was not, in fact, authored by the Buddha. And foremost among these scholars was Zerkarwa. Now, mm-hmm. his grounds for doing so become actually really important um, in the context of the larger arguments of the chapter. And they're varied, right? They go from mm-hmm. anywhere from um, talking about the kind of place um, that's discussed in the text, talking about um, the sort of the the nature of the text as a deliberate fiction, right? And mm-hmm. what does that mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you uh, maybe talk a little bit about that? For you, what are the most important aspects of his critique in terms of the larger work that's being done in this part of the book and, and that you think are most important? Okay, well, um, it's fascinating. So the one thing that the listener has to know is that uh, Tibetan Buddhists composed and created many works of Buddhist literature. And some of them are obviously and self-admittedly written, you know, by historical figures. But there also is a long tradition of creating uh, sacred scripture that in some ways is attributed somehow to an inspiration coming from the Buddha himself, either, you know, in some kind of mystical, timeless place, or even historically that the Buddha himself spoke that way. And that's really important for root texts, you know, to have authority, because in general, and this is what Zurga himself says, actually, is that Tibetans can't believe anything unless it was spoken by the Buddha himself. By the way, just even saying that has a temerity, you know, like for him even to say that is amazing that he was able to say that. And as we pointed out, the Desi hated him for this very reason. <laughs> but um, 
But uh, so um, now I'm losing my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> We're talking about the right. um, the important things about the nature of his um, critique, and you were mentioning right. that even just saying that this would be a text that like that you needed to say that a text was um, authored by the Buddha in order to make Tibetans believe it, even like localizing it right within a Tibetan readership was itself like that's right wacky for you know for the genre he was writing in exactly, and so you know. Historians like me, you know, and all historians really, uh, who are looking at this uh, case critically, um, th- it's clear that the text was written in the 11th century or the 12th century, basically the 12th century, by a particular Tibetan historical author. And it seems that this uh, Yudo Yundungompo or Yudok, um, and uh, it seems that Yudok himself or some of his disciples framed the work as a teaching of the Buddha, which is a common practice in Tibet. Buddhist works. So that's what I was trying to say. But, um, and then there are certain debates about, oh, could this possibly be true about Buddhist works at all? But in the case of the medical texts, so it's way before Zurgawa, they start noticing really, you know, salient things like, uh, how come the text mentions Sampa? And Sampa is the main food stuff that Tibetans eat in Tibet. And in India, they know that nobody's ever heard of Sampa. So why does, you know, that seems really weird that a Sanskrit Indian work would mention Tibetan food if this text was actually originally uttered by the Buddha and then translated into Sanskrit. So they start finding all these stuff about climate, about different kinds of food. For example, goat meat. Is goat meat a food that is eaten in warm climates or is eaten in cold climates? And they start doing this critique based on empirical knowledge of climate and, and difference between India and Tibet that makes it impossible for the work to have been written in India. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the same thing, by the way, that modern historians do all the time when they're trying to assess the validity of some authorial claim. The thing that's interesting about Zurgawa's move, so, he, so he's following this and he knows about it. And yet at the same time, and this is the place where like a really important methodological problem of this book for this chapter and the next chapter was that, you know, when I was first doing this research, I got all excited, like, oh, my God, you know, here we have the it's the same story as the European Enlightenment or the scientific revolution where people are just throwing out the old and they are like putting in this kind of new, completely different source of knowledge based on on empirical realities and not you know, throwing out God and so on. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what's going on in, in Tibet. But that's not exactly where Zurgawa ends up. He is critiquing the idea that the work was written by the Buddha. It's, and he's very explicit about it. And he's also very self-conscious that it, it was a necessary fiction to frame it as a teaching of the Buddha, as is a very common custom in Tibet. And he's very bold in saying that, but he, he understands why um, the guy Yudok would have done that. But then he gives you this whole interpretational move that actually, you know, when you're talking about inspiration, when you have a very brilliant person like Yudok, who like actually, in fact, the, the four treatises is really a combination of medical learning from India, from China, from Western Asia, even coming from the Greco-Arabic traditions of medicine, Inner Asia, and so on. Brilliant guy. He puts together this amazing synthesis where is that? What's that brilliance? And he's realizing that that brilliance is not very far from what the Buddhists are talking about when they're talking about the enlightened impulse of the Buddha. So even though, you know, you know, strictly speaking, it wasn't the exact historical person, the Buddha, who wrote this text, in a, in a way, it's not so different from it being by an enlightened, you know, brilliant person like the Buddha, namely Yudo. So even though he's cutting through this kind of historical claim, he's also, he's sort of kind of reasserting it. And I'm trying to call this like a post-empirical turn where he ends up saying that even though the Buddha didn't write this, it doesn't matter. This is as good as the word of the Buddha because it helps sentient beings. It helps people to get better from illnesses. And that's the really interesting move that he makes. So he's not just caught in this falsely, you know, objectivist science, empirical frame. He's also very finely attuned to the cultural implications and the cultural importance and the moral importance of of knowledge systems, you see. So that's what's really great about him. And he's, you know, writing in the 16th century, you know, he could have been almost writing today the way his sensibilities and and his deafness with the way he, that he makes his argument. 
So that's right. And we see this actually really nicely also in the next chapter, right? As I think you've indicated. So this is a chapter, chapter four, that actually opens in a really super cool way. And I'm going to mention it just because um, a lot of listeners may not know about this. Um, (laughs) This opens with a physician from the fifth Dalai Lama's court who actually publicly dissected human corpses to count their bones. So this is somebody who with students in a public park, and that's important in Lhasa, dissects an old man, an old woman, a young man, and a young woman, and counts up a number of bones, 365. Incidentally, that's not um, the number that um, you were supposed to find. And this um, is important insofar as, among other things, it suggests that um, findings of the present could supersede or inform the authorities of the past. Exactly. So this is sort of what we've been talking about. And the chapter moves on from this to focus again on uh, Zerkawa by looking at the way he um, interjects into debates over the channels of the body. So I'm not going to go into too many details here. The chapter really, really beautifully lays out this idea of, (laughs) right. I'm not going to ask you to do this in detail either. There's a wonderful chapter, chapter four, and it lays out the details of um, really three kinds of authority, um, the tantric scriptures, what can be seen and touched and perceived in the empirical body itself and knowledge of the four treatises um, that each are kind of describing channels in a particular way. Right. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, all right, there are these tantric channels in the tantric body that are supposed to look and sort of uh, function one way. And then there's what we can see when we, you know, open up a body and, you know, that because for various reasons, this was not probably an uncommon kind of experience, right? To see the inside of a dead body in this context. So yeah. how, do you rec- how do you reconcile both of these in a way that doesn't just say, look, the tantric stuff is BS or the, you know, looking, right. um, you know, personally at a body is BS. And so yeah. Karwa has a really interesting way of reconciling these. So can you maybe um, say a bit about this? For you, what's the most important um, kind of aspects of the way he goes in and, um you know, does this sort of post-empiricist turn and reconciles the two. Yeah. So again, I would use that term. So basically, you know, so the tantric channels, if anybody's done kundalini yoga or knows about this kind of, you know, yoga systems where you try to draw the breath or the bodily wind into a central channel, and then there's these two side channels that pretty much go down the center of the body. This is an old map of the body that you see in Hindu works and Buddhist works, very, very central to Buddhist meditation and other kinds of Hindu med- meditation as well. And uh, the discrepancy between this map and, you know, indeed, so, you know, people will know that in Tibet, they the way that they dispose of dead bodies is by chopping them up and feeding them to vultures. And so I'm hypothesizing that in Tibet in particular, because you don't see this exact kind of discussion or debate in Indian literature, as far as I know, and I did really look for this and couldn't find it, where you actually have over doubt. You know, why is it when we when we look inside the body, we don't see that central channel and those side channels? How come they're not there? And what do we make of this? And so, again, this following the kind of historiography of the European Enlightenment, you would want to say, well, they just threw out that and wanted to and they just went straight for the empirical. And indeed, the four treatises does then give you a very detailed account of the cardiovascular system and the nervous system as the two main kinds of channels that are inside the body. And yet, this is the post-empirical turn that Zurgawa doesn't want to totally throw out the tantric system. And the reason is, first of all, one, you know, he's probably a a, you know, a serious Buddhist and who does some kind of practice. People are doing yogic practice. And whether or not the map of the, the, the meditative map of the body um, is right or wrong, something about it works. And there's something about, and this is like the really interesting subject that has yet to be fully researched. You know, I'm just like accounting for like the the debates that were going on. But I think, you know, and and we're getting a lot of neuroscientific, you know, interest in Buddhist modes of meditation and stuff now, is that there's something about that map that's efficacious, he thinks, in some way or another. He doesn't want to get rid of it entirely. And so what he does is he kind of 
he locates it. It's a complicated story. As you say, he locates it in the embryo. So by the time that the person is, you know, fully developed and ready to leave the mother's womb, you don't see it anymore. It's turned into the cardiovascular and the nervous system, but somehow it's implicitly there. And then he, so what happens later is he, he has, he takes recourse to that tantric anatomy to explain certain things that can't be explained by empirical data alone. And so what we'll see later in the book is that, for example, gender difference, and this is too much to give the detail, but he finds it useful to talk about certain orientations in the body, certain maybe patterns in the body and or styles of, of self-organization, of the winds, of the energies. You know, these are the kind of things they talk about in tantric yogic systems. And, you know, in general, in modern science, we think, oh, that's just all baloney. You know, maybe you can talk about it. It's not really real because you don't see it. He's not 100% sure that he wants to totally get rid of it, even though, you know, he's, he'll, he, he tries to push it aside so that the medical doctors can get on with what truly are the empirical channels of the body, because that's what they have to work with. And so he's trying to serve two masters at the same time. He wants the doctors not to have to be tripped up by this arcane tantric system, which isn't even there, according to, you know, the eyes and the fingers. You don't see it. You don't feel it. And yet he wants to, in some way, and he like trips over himself trying to figure out a way to make it implicit that you could draw on it when you need it, or maybe when you have a very complicated body-mind relationship that you can't explain in bodily terms at, at, at all. And, and I, I, I just do think, even though I, I can't say how, that this, you know, for research going forward, this is a really interesting way of trying to think about the body. Not that you would take this material literally per se, but just about certain patterns in the body that maybe can't exactly be seen. That's the kind of thing that he's trying to not get rid of entirely. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, you use the um, phrase here and in the next chapter um, on the heart, right? And we, again, we don't have time yeah. to talk about the details, but this is a, like an argument over yeah. whether or not um, the, a, a previous claim that the heart of the body actually tipped in a different direction in males yeah. and females, like right. what to do about that. And you, and you talk about his skill in ambiguity and his trick of, as you call it, riding several horses at once until he yeah. sees which will serve best, right, for the task. Right. And it's really fascinating. And I think there's um, thinking about the sort of mastery of ambiguity as a skill um, is, I mm-hmm. think, really, really useful here. Yeah. Now, there's a whole coda that we won't talk about, but that I'll right. just mark for listeners. Um, there's a coda here at the end of this uh, chat or, or at the end of this part of the book that brings um, our two kind of protagonists, Desi and Zerkarwa, together by looking closely at how the Desi um, then looked at Zerkarwa's work and these interventions that Zerkarwa was making. And in, in, interestingly, um, treated them kind of differently um, in different cases. So I'll just mark that um, for <laughs> listeners. Um, right. Definitely look to that because it's a really interesting part of the book. But let's get to the third part. This is Roots of the Profession, um, and it starts with Chapter 6. Now, Chapter 6, looking at the late 12th century, asks what impact, as you put it, medicine's attention to the empirical body may have had on the way women and gender were represented. And we see some really, really interesting things happening here. Um, So in contradistinction to other forms of medicine like Ayurveda, the four treatises of Tibetan medicine actually conceived of female pathology as its own branch of medicine. It's yeah. really interesting. Now, yeah. at, at the same time, you point to several passages in the medical treatise that were, um, you know, frankly, misogynist. So yeah. can you maybe talk about this? What um, do we need to understand about this sort of potentially misogynist um, element of the treatise? And why is that important in terms of the larger arguments you're making in this part of the book? Well, one of the reasons it's important is, is that social conception, you know, politics, rhetoric, and so on is not divorced from scientific knowledge. And the two intersect in complicated ways. And so I think one of the important things of this chapter is the ability to tolerate what might appear to us as blatant contradiction. 
Because on the one hand, you do have a bunch of quite misogynistic statements about women. You know, it's just coming out of a very fundamental, let's say, like you find everywhere in the world, you know, a sense that men are more important than women. A lot of androcentrism in, you know, medical attention to the male as opposed to the female, something that continues to this very day in the United States uh, and so on. And yet at the same time in, in places – and in some very important places, the doctors set that thing aside, that rhetoric aside, and then they actually start to see some really important things about sex and gender, which also could be in conversation with stuff going on today in gender theory, which is, you know, exploding in importance, as you know very well. Mm-hmm. And and so to so the, you know so the at at the broadest level what's important is as a historian when you're reading these kinds of things that you see that you don't reduce you know one sentence or one part of the word then that just disqualifies everything else that's said there about gender and you can tolerate inconsistencies because people are not inconsistent and science just like you know the humanities is also inconsistent because it can't totally free itself from you know, cultural prejudice. Mm-hmm. And so that part's important. And let me just say that the second part of the book that I think is really important is the really interesting stuff on the third sex oh, that, yeah. that you see. Yeah, yeah. And that's where um, uh, that's not entirely unique to Tibetan medicine. So it's inherited from India. There is this notion of three sexes, you know, male, female, and something in between and the label for which changes. And so it's a kind of shifting category, which I've actually written about in other places as well as the book. Uh, that um, And I think it's in some ways appropriate that the term for it is shifting because what, the, what it is actually is something that mediates between two poles, you know, a totally male and a totally female. You have this intermediary which is neither here nor there, but is a very interesting and creative space. Actually, a colleague of mine is wants to call this category queer, and there may be something to that. But as I say, historically, the, both the Indians and the Tibetans are talking about it using various terms that keep changing. But what's really interesting is the difference, again, between um, here, between medicine and Buddhism. There is a longstanding rule uh, which will dismay people who like Buddhism to know that in Buddhist monasticism that you are, if your sexuality, and it's not really, I don't think it's, it's not about your sexual practice. So it's not about homosexuality. It's about your anatomy. If your anatomy is in some way ambiguous, then you are not allowed to take ordination as a full monk or full nun in Buddhism across the board. And so that's there. It's in the Vinaya. It's in the rules for monasticism. On the other hand, medicine finds this third category very interesting and of, of sexual identity. It's a complicated discussion you have to read, but actually realizes that this third category is really important. And, and, and then it goes on to talk about the fact that just because you have one and this is Zurgawa in particular who makes this clear. because So it's already implicit earlier on in Tibetan medicine, but Zurgawa is the guy who brings it out. He says, you know, just because you're anatomically a female doesn't mean that you have a female personality. So he is actually, and he uses certain terms, which actually is starting to come up with a notion like our modern gender. In other words, a style, a way of self-presentation, which is not tied to anatomy. So anatomy is not destiny. And that, I think, is a really striking and amazingly important um, insight, even in the context where uh, in other places of the book. And actually, don't see this in Zurgauer very much, but in the original work where it's blatantly misogynist. So, right. there you Thank go. you so much. And, and I highly, highly recommend that listeners um, really look closely at this chapter because there's a lot of really fascinating um, evidence from the text that's, you know, developing um, what we've been talking about. Now, this brings us to chapter seven. Um, this is, our, again, a really also fascinating chapter that looks at Tibetan medicine's professional ethics. Um, now, the four treatises had a whole chapter on the training and the character of a physician. And in this chapter, the text is both kind of distinguishing and also trying to reconcile 
two dharmas or two ways. There's the human dharma or the way of the humans, and then the Buddha's true dharma. Right. You take us into a really interesting 12th or 13th century commentary to the Four Treatises chapter on medical ethics, and this is in a text called Small Myriad. Now, this chapter, again, translates and transforms concepts from the Buddha's true dharma, but for human ends. And you take us into some really interesting ways that this is happening that really, I think, bring to a head and and sort of um, act as a kind of culmination of this intersection and interweaving and entanglement between the medical, the human, the empirical, and the um, classic, the religious, the Buddhist, the traditional that really, you know, threads throughout the whole book. So for you, I'm just going to hit the ball back to you um, and ask you to talk about what for you are some of the most interesting and important ways that the virtues of a doctor are discussed um, in this chapter that really kind of um, uh, illustrate this interweaving between the human and the Buddhist uh, dharmas. Well, thank you. And I just want to say, by the way, uh, I really appreciate your reading of the book. Oh, it's <laughs> and, you, and you got so much of it right. It's just like very rewarding to know that at least one human being has actually <laughs> read this book. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, the, so the whole thing of these two categories, they weren't categories made up by medicine. So they weren't into better reading. They're really interesting. But medicine really uses them and goes to town on them in ways that probably nothing else in Tibet did. And that's the distinction you say between the Dharma of humans and the dar- and, and the true Dharma of the Buddha. So notice that they're using the word Dharma in both cases, which they're using in a very particular way. But that's, that's, that's why I call the book Being Human that really medicine is about the human way and it distinguishes it. So it talks about physicians who can be truly Buddhist. And so that it would be a physician who's completely selfless and completely non-selfish and is completely devoted to his patients. But the human way doctor is the doctor who is also totally devoted to his patients, but also devoted to making money, making sure that he has a successful career, all the materialistic issues that have to be considered in in the real world and and but that ethics also then um you know um applies to a lot of other things it's not only about being ambitious and wanting to be known and wanting to you know have a good reputation which are all considered to be human things they're the kinds of things that the buddhist supposedly is not supposed to care about what his reputation is and i point out in the chapter that maybe if if you're a sage you know living in the forest you can afford to do that but if 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 you're a doctor you can't be a pauper because if you're a doctor who has no money at all you can't buy instruments you can't buy medicines you don't you don't have the tools of your trade and this this is actually becomes one of the really interesting differences i think between religion and science in science you have to have material objects whereas in religion sometimes it can be the matter of the spirit or the mind alone which is good enough to some degree and so that's a really interesting distinction. But then I, what the thing I like best about this whole topic and in the chapter is they start to get into type of virtues for the doctor, which are really, again, a little bit different than the Buddhist. And one of them, I very much like this notion of materiality. So the, the chapter talks a lot about the relationship between the teacher and the medical student mm-hmm. and what kind of relationship you need to have in order to learn medicine. And there's and and it's it's interesting for the, again the comparison with Tibetan Buddhism, which also has a huge amount of stuff on the relationship between the guru and the disciple, which is also of course filled with really important moral and ethical kind of in, insights. But something about the, in the medical case, it's more material. It's more taking into account the realities of the world. It's more taking into the, so it separates the notion of style, like personal style from its moral implication. So one of the things that the text tells the uh, student is be like your, your teacher. Whatever your teacher likes to do, if your teacher likes to play, if your teacher likes to farm, and then it goes on and says, if your teacher likes to fight, which <laughs> is definitely not a Buddhist virtue to fight. And, and, you know, whatever your teacher does, just be like your teacher, because there's something about this really important intimacy beyond judgment of your teacher that's really important, that you need to 
get so close to the teacher. Why? Because what you're learning from the teacher are certain ways of handling your instruments, ways of handling the patient, you know, this whole sort of very materialistic, you know, down to earth kind of way of being in the world that you need to pick up. And part of it is just being open to his, his style. And there's actually a Tibetan word for this, which was a new word to me. And that I think is just really fascinating because it's, it's, it's able to separate, you know, moral, moral judgment from intimacy. Mm-hmm. And which I think is a really fascinating uh, thing to think about, not that moral judgment wouldn't ultimately come to play. Of course it does. You know, you don't want to be intimate with the murderer and just start, you know, you know, uh, and, 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 and there, and there are all kinds of, you know, moral cautions that even the human way of medicine actually advises as well. But just the way that it tips into a more sort of down to earth materialistic side of a, a kind of doctor's way of being, which is indeed also very, very ethical, was fascinating to me. And what I end up with at the end of the book is the way that death operates on the horizon. And I make this point that, you know, um, the whole question of death in Buddhism, you know, so this is just like really in some ways caricaturizing, you know, what's the ultimate goal of Buddhism is to get enlightened. And what's the ultimate goal of the physician is to cure the patient. And how, you know, whether you're enlightened or not is a very complex um, state of affairs. How do you know if somebody else is enlightened? How do you know if you're enlightened? There's been a lot of stuff Written on this topic, you can look at Steve Collins' book, big book on nirvana, what is the nature of nirvana. Um, and it's a very, very rich, obviously, site for religion. But in medicine, you know, the question of whether you have cured your patient, and particularly if the patient has died or not, you know, I'm just struck by how absolute is that judgment that, you know, it's either yes or no. The patient is still alive or he's dead. <laughs> And yes, you know, there's debates about, you know, when do you take someone off life support? When has the person actually died? That's true. But that's, you know, that's a kind of very, you know, specific matter. But basically the the sort of total clarity, you know, death is death. And, And the way that they deal with death in medicine, the way that death is dealt with in religion, I think in some ways are defining... Um, sort of way of looking at things that maybe defines the whole sort of tension between religion and science, I would say. That's right. That's great. And the chapter, I think, ends on, um, or at least sort of, you know, close to the end of the chapter, it makes a really, you make a really important point here, which is, which, you know, I think brings together a lot of these issues, um, the importance of this, you know, intimacy with the teacher, the importance at one point of speaking with the forked tongue of a snake, right? Yeah. And the outcome of a situation is unclear, which is awesome, and how to deal with um, the certainty or the absoluteness of death. Um, it's that the medical ethics of the four treatises, ultimately, as you put it here, was about managing forces outside of the physician's control. Exactly. Um, which is just, I think, a really wonderfully insightful point here and um, really important. So, Janet, um, we, there's also a conclusion, and I won't, uh, I'll just mark the presence of a conclusion, um, which really wraps up a lot of these threads um, for listeners who are going to read the book. Um, now, there's a lot that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? It's an extraordinarily rich book of more than 400 pages. I mean, there's so much that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, yeah, one thing that is really important is that I want to mention, and I want to um, give due recognition to the fact that the only way that I was able to actually do this project was that I had a wonderful student, uh, his name is Yanga, um, who's from Tibet, he's a medical historian, he actually was at Harvard to do his PhD here. He also wrote a great thesis on Tibetan medicine in an earlier period than my book, but he read with me a lot of these passages. And one of the most important things in reading the passages, in addition to their very technical terminology, is really getting, you know, when is the author being ironic? When is the author being sarcastic? When is the author actually hedging his bets? Or where is there a sleight of hands? You know, this is a very, very close reading, which for me, it was an, a, a great gift 
to see the way that he read the works as a native reader who also understood the history, the culture around the tradition, which, you know, was so much more precise than my kind of very, you know, normative, you know, expectations of what I wanted the text to say. And it kept surprising me that it didn't say what I thought it was going to say. And just that collaboration was so vital um, that um, I, I think in reading certain cultural documents, like those of us who are in Asian studies who are not coming out of an Asian background, we need so much cultural literacy. It's really, really important uh, to keep trying to keep yourself honest for that. And that, by the way, it's not true only of someone who's grown up in the West. I think modern Asian students, uh, too, have inherited all these, you know, uh, romantic ideas about, you know, the East versus West, which are just as problematic as the ones that we have here and so on. And so how one has to be very open and very cautious in one's way of reading. I mean, I just, um, that was fundamental to a project like this, which I also would like to add, it took me something like 12 years to write this book, and it literally drove me crazy. <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad that it is finished. <laughs> Despite the fact, there's one one more thing that I'll say is that when the when I got a small subvention for the publishing of the book, which allowed the press to include all these color illustrations, which normally they don't do so easily, that the art department at Columbia, which were great, and they really went to town and they got really excited, and the, and the book became extremely beautiful and well decorated. But I think they were, they were especially excited and intrigued about all these Im- images of sex that I did want to point to. <laughs> and those images of sex are really big in the book. Uh, so, but anyway, I just let them have their fun. But, uh, and I'm also very grateful to them, too. And Columbia was great. So I'll put in a, a shout out to them, too. Awesome. Thank you. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on an amazing book, Janet. I mean, it's really, it's beautiful. And this is going to be on syllabi and bookshelves for um, many, many decades to come. I'm sure of it. What's next for you? What are you working on now that's currently inspiring you? Right. Well, um, Thomas Kasulis, who's a colleague in Buddhist studies, who is uh, is about to re- retire, told me that the first thing that he was going to do when, when he retires is do nothing for six months, which is kind of what... <laughs> I want to do, although I'm not retiring anytime soon. Um, but the so that's one of the, the main thing I want to do. But no, the, I have a desire. I don't know whether I'll be able to do. It. I'm really interested. You know, I'm really interested in stuff about the material world. I'm interested in animals and animal ethics, and I want to find a way to talk about how we. And, and this is not in Tibetan studies. It may be inspired by Buddhist ideals of compassion, but I want to do it. Uh, I, I want to find ways to talk about how to appre- how to sharpen our ability, our sensitivities to notice how intelligent animals are, to notice their feelings, and 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 for an animal ethics to kind of grow out, out of that. So that's the kind of thing I, I have this idea. I'm, I'm going on leave next year, but when I come back, I have this idea that I would teach a course in which the entire course would be looking at YouTube videos of a- animals for the entire semester and doing nothing but that. Um, so that's probably a crazy idea, you know, no reading, just watching a- animals all the time. <laughs> so, um, whether that'll happen or not, I don't know, but something like, like that, I am hoping, and probably some other things, more serious, uh, Tibetan studies things too, but I'm not really sure yet. Well, that actually sounds awesome. And also being on leave for a year sounds awesome. Yeah. So congratulations on that. Congratulations <laughs> on the book. And thank you so much for making time to talk with me. Well, thank you so much for asking me. And also, again, thank you for being such a close reader and enthusiastic reader. It really, I I appreciate it a lot. So thank you so so much, Carla. And I hope we uh, talk to each other again. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we will see you next time.